You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Robert Fries. Uh, he's the CEO of the Hub for Organoids team in the Netherlands. The website is hub the number four organoids.nl. So, Rob, thank you for coming. How are you doing today? Very well. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, and uh, I was letting Rob know, and you know, the listeners know we've done a number of calls on organoids. So, um, you know, we're going to go in deep on this stuff. Uh, I've probably done at least 10 calls on it. So, you know, it's a very interesting phenomenon. Uh, organoids are super useful for testing drugs and for approximating body functions. And it's just, it seems to be an explosion in uh, research organizations that are working with them, as far as I can tell. So, uh, Rob, tell me a little bit about Hub for Organoids. What is the premise of your guys' work? Uh, yeah, no, I think that indeed, uh, as you said, uh, the organoid, uh, organoid field has expanded tremendously over the last uh, couple of years. And uh, for us, of course, that from the hub, that, uh, that's very interesting. We uh, are a spin-off company from the Academic Institute here in the Netherlands, where we initially uh, invented the technology. So um, in, the, in 2009, we, uh, we for the first time published the organoid technology uh, as, a, as a technology that allows the expansion of adult stem cells. And, uh, and, and then uh, with that, uh, and, and actually first uh, we worked on, 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 on uh, intestine and later we developed it for many other organs. Um, so for us indeed, these, this explosion of interest over the last couple of years is, uh, is, uh, is uh, very good news, of course, and also uh, uh, both in, in Research Institute, but also industry is, is picking it up now as a, as a, as a platform to develop drugs uh, that is more resembling patients than what we, what we had in the past. So uh, you know, what kind of cells are you using to create the organoids and how important is the starting cell? Yeah, that's, I think that's a key point. So that actually then, then indeed, as, a, as in the introduction, uh, brings it first back to the, to the start. So the, the academic part of the technology was based on the identification of the adult stem cell in, in solid organs. So for a long time, uh, we've known that, that the intestine, lung, all these organs, they have stem cells during adult life that renew or repair the, the tissue, but we could never uh, pinpoint them. We couldn't identify them. And then in the lab of Hans Klevers, we, we for the first time identified these cells, the stem cells of, of the intestine and then other organs by a molecular marker, LGR5, a molecule. And that basically allowed us to say which cells in each organ, in each epithelial organ, epithelial part of an organ, are the, uh, are the stem cells. And that is the basis of the technology, organoid technology. So when, with this identification, um, the lab wanted to 
devised a method that allowed us to grow these cells in, in the lab. Um, so we first isolated these, these adult stem cells and then came up with a growth factor mix and a method that, that basically allows us to grow these in, in, in the stem cell, first intestinal stem cells and then, and then other uh, epithelial stem cells um, in a way that, and that was the main point. We wanted to be able to grow cells that were genetically stable and epigenetically stable. And that is uh, because in the past we've grown cells, of course, uh, often. However, when we use them in the lab, they change. They, they adapt to the lab culture system. And, uh, and, and that, that is the reason that models often don't look like patients anymore. And so that is the main thing we wanted to change. And now we know what the stem cells were. We knew the building stones. Can we then expand them while maintaining their genetic and, and phenotypic stability? And so that worked. That is the organoids. And, and so the, the starting material is the adult stem cell of a tissue. That being said, when we generate organs, uh, sorry, organoids uh, from, from different organs now, from tissue samples, we actually, because we now scientifically understand the premises of the of the of the system, we actually start with tissue fragments. Of course, that makes it much faster than trying to isolate the stem cell first. Uh, but indeed, the basis of the system is this adult stem cell, and then in an organoid culture that is expanding and generates also its offspring, its daughter cells, differentiated cells of the uh, the specific tissues of an organ. All right. So, what are some of the uh, trade offs? associated with using certain stem cells. I would think maybe if you use um, easily accessible stem cells, maybe they exist in uh, blood or maybe fat or maybe even skin, if there are any, they might be very accessible, but maybe they don't, uh, they can't be induced into pluripotency. Uh, Maybe there's certain stem cells that are just great at being used to make all kinds of organoids. Like what what does it look like? Which are the good ones? Which are the not so good ones? Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's a, that's a, that's an important point. But so the uh, I think that there are when we talk about organoids, maybe also I don't know if the if uh, in the uh, in the other uh, um, uh, discussions or what is what is actually called an organoid, and, and maybe we skipped that uh, now in the beginning of the of the conversation. But so the term organoid is is in general, it's in the past it's been used sort of very broadly, and and I think that finally the field stepped away from it. But so at the moment, what we consider organoids are are, are cells that have a, that are patient derived and have, and maintain a, a level of stability in 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 a culture system, mimicking the function of an organ. Um, but they can be in origin have have two main uh, cells that that build them. On the one hand, that what our system is the adult stem cell. So that means a cell that is. Uh, that is specific to the organ that it originates from. So an intestinal stem cell makes an intestine an intestinal organoid, therefore, not a liver, not another organ. A liver stem cell makes that. Whereas the iPS cells are indeed derived from a random cell in the body. It can be a skin, can be blood. And they are genetically manipulated into making an embryonal-like cell, a basic uh, pluripotent cell. And that can then be redifferentiated into a specific organ, let's say an intestine or a lung. Um, so that means in that sense that both, uh, we both consider them organoids because as opposed to old systems, they are actually uh, in very much functionally mimicking the, the, the organs that we generate from them. But the fundamental difference is that uh, the, in, in, for iPS cells, you go through a genetic, uh, a genetic modification and change to, to remove basically differentiation marks that are there. And then to re-differentiate it into the cells that you want, which because of this, 
means that you can, the advantage is you can generate in principle any tissue of the body, but the disadvantage is that you lose the specific characteristics it had and you lose a, a part of the genetic stability. So and the, uh, the epigenetic marks uh, are no longer available. So that means that when we talk about drug responses, either for a group or for uh, personalized, um, that you can no longer do because you remove those personalized marks, you remove those marks. And another important point is when you talk about cancer, of course, a cancer is, is a, is a, has a, undergone its own genetic evolution, generating the tumor. So that cannot be mimicked by an iPS cell. So you will need the original cell, uh, the cancer itself, to grow. And that is where the organoids from adult stem cell come in. And uh, there you have, uh, on the one hand, with, through biopsies or resections, uh, so inaccessible uh, stem cells are, are, gener are derived and then make an organoid. And this is how you can make a tissue-specific uh, uh, organoid uh, or a disease-specific uh, cancer because you directly derive it from the tumor. All right, so question here. So if I wanted to, if I was developing new drugs and I wanted to test their, their toxicity on the heart, it yeah. sounds like I should get, um, I should induce pluripotency and make some organoids and then side by side. And so, okay, so the ones that I induce pluripotency in, that would tell me generically for a population of people what the drug may do to the heart. But then I'd also want to do some heart stem cells and use those maybe for specific populations or, or for a specific patient to see if there's there's toxicity. Just for instance, I should. it sounds like I should do both in my yeah. lab if I had one. I think that that's indeed what it is. So it is. it, it depends. It, your example, I think, is exactly what it, what it is. Um, I think the uh, that when you, the, it, the choice of organoid system is uh, depends a little bit on the disease. So indeed, when you do cardiac uh, diseases, I would suggest that IPS cells are the model to use. To be honest, also because we have our system is epithelium and not muscle, so cardiac is difficult anyway. But and, and the IPS derived are are very suitable for that, and also for brain, for instance. Um, um, before when we talk about cancer. The, uh, the primary is simply because mimicking a cancer genetically is virtually impossible or impossible. So this is when an adult stem cell organoid is, is a more uh, more relevant system. Um, on top of that, your toxicology question, and I think that is indeed also a key point. Um, when you have your target organs, uh, you can study toxicology and, and the epigenetic uh, regulation of toxicology. However, um, if you want to have more personalized or, or other organs like uh, brain or, or, or heart, um, and you could you can generate from the one cell line all these different organs. So you can make that comparison, which in an adult stem cell organ it would not be possible because you're restricted to the organ. Um, so indeed, and, and maybe there's a long answer, but to summarize, because I think you made a very important point, I think from our, of course, uh, uh, adult organ biased uh, perspective, but is that both IPS and uh, the adult stem cells, I think that together are, are really the, the, the modern way of doing uh, 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 models, uh, using yeah. models. And, uh, I think that with the combination of these two technologies, the need for the old fashioned cell lines or, or uh, the, 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 the even animal models, I think in a large, uh, in a large part, seems to be not, not useful or in any way uh, needed anymore uh, because the combination of adult stem cells and IPS cells gives you basically any flexibility that you would want into mimicking people in disease. Well, okay. So, I mean, right now, animal models are unfortunately, you know, mouse and rat models are the gold standard. Um, is there a large study being done to compare 
organoids versus you know rat and mouse models, and will that become the new standard for drug development versus mouse and rat models? I think so. So I think that there's two two things to that. On the one hand, I think in the future, of course, because the that the reason that we use the animal models is because we we cannot test it in people, of course. But it had the major setback that why do we often not predict toxicology? Because in that sense, toxicology is more difficult even than efficacy of drugs, uh, because an, a mouse is not a person. So so then when we go to people, all of a sudden it turns out to be very different. So there is a big reason, a very a big rationale between not to use uh, animal models uh, from that perspective. Uh, what we have done ourselves, indeed, in collaboration with with a number of industrial partners, is that we uh, we do two comparison. On the one hand, we make organoids, for instance, intestinal organoids for intestinal toxicity or liver toxicity from liver, and then we look at how the organoids predict toxicity that we know of, of compounds we know to be toxic in the clinic. And indeed, then we get a very high predictability of the organoids. And then secondly, because of course, the gold, as you said, the gold standard of toxicology are these animal models. Um, we basically take fit in with these uh, partners, of course, that know the in vivo toxicology of compounds in, the, in a rat or a mouse or a monkey. Uh, we make organoids from them as well, from the animals, because we can do it from animals, of course, as well. And then that shows actually that the organoid, indeed also a rat organoid from an intestine, shows the toxicity we see in vivo in the rat. So uh, that, that we do these two comparisons, and we have done a lot with a number of companies. And indeed, we show that, uh, that uh, well, hopefully that will then also roll out animal models in the future. Uh, there's, uh, there's work to be done, uh, to be honest. But, but indeed, in a direct comparison for the moment, we, we see the same as that we are seeing for efficacy studies. So, yeah, this is interesting. Maybe the best approach would be to do um, animal model then animal organoids to see if it's mimicked, let's say in terms of toxicity, then human organoids, then human trials. Maybe all these three steps would be, you know, I know it'd be more expensive, but maybe all these three steps would really put you on a, a path towards knowing whether a drug was going to work or not, for instance. Or I think maybe so. you start and with I, the yeah. human ones first. I don't know, the human organoids. Well, I think your point is that, of course, the organoid technology is new. So uh, from our end, we can, uh, we, we of course think that uh, they're great because we're making them. Nevertheless, we have to prove that they are. So I think yeah. that what you said, as uh, the first step is, I think exactly what you're suggesting. Uh, we, this is the way to to give people the the confidence that it is actually uh, uh, comparable, and therefore, in the end, you might be able to use only human organoids, or uh, use the organoids of the mouse models as an in between. Um, but at the moment, we are doing what you're saying to 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 prove that that is the case, and to make uh, to to show that you can maybe use only the organoids, and then in the end, because that is how it will not make hopefully or presumably make it cheaper, because we use in the end then human organoids, which are more predictable for humans. Uh, that will first of all skip a lot of preclinical work, but more importantly. We will preclinically, we call that a preclinical clinical trial, is when in a last phase of drug development, we with lead compounds actually screen against an, uh, against the bio, let's say we took colon cancer, we start developing a drug uh, against one, uh, and a big screen against one uh, colon cancer organoid. But then when we when we have hits, we, we, we increase the group of organoids or different patients to get a better idea what it does in the population. And very importantly, also for tox, to make the comparison with the normal tissue of that same patient to see is it indeed uh, targeting a cancer but not a normal tissue. And then in a final step, 
when we have these uh, added delete compounds, we, we, we screen it against 100 organoids, let's say, but add what's the one called preclinical clinical trial, when we have in this preclinical phase a good assessment of what it will do in the trial. And with this, um, had the, we have all had the compounds that we've developed so far ourselves or with partners indeed move through this preclinical phase much faster and uh, and, and, and have, a, have an efficacy in the clinic that it was already predicted preclinically. Mm. And therefore, uh, they're reducing costs. Well, here's, here's one problem that's kind of funny. I, I see like at least four complicating factors. I'm just going to list them quick. So one is I've talked to companies that will link up organoids like kidneys to live or live, liver to kidney, et cetera. So I had one company at least tell me that when they linked liver and kidney organoids, for instance, they saw that the liver would change a drug and the metabolites from it would then cause kidney toxicity. They didn't see that until they linked up to two organoids. So there's the complicating factor, which I don't hear a lot of companies doing, of linking organoids to really approximate function. Then what if how different are the effects between um, IPS cells and you know uh, ones that are just you know the native stem cells? So you said the epigenetic marks are there or not? You know how different is that? Then what function of the organoids are you approximating? You know maybe if a given organ has forty cell types, what if you're approximating a cell type that doesn't have toxicity to a drug and another part of the organ does? Then I've also learned that there's a microbial constituent to pretty much all organs. So the organoids themselves seem to be devoid of, you know, their own microbiomes, which may be a huge factor. I mean, Mm. and on and on and on. So it just seems like, what do you do? It's crazy to, how do you actually approximate what what would go on in a person without like your head exploding? Yeah. Well, Uh, that's a good start to not have that happen. I think that it is. Uh, these are these are the key points. Uh, the list, and indeed the list is longer. Um, and that is uh, first of all. I think it's important to see that that is, of course, a very general point. Uh, because ultimately, if we, uh, if you could, from a drug efficacy perspective, not from a person's perspective, make a drug, you would want to test it on people because then you know what happens. Uh, for obvious reasons, that's not what we do. Um, so this is why we have models to begin with. We, we basically have a model because we, we cannot test a medicine, new medicine or, or existing on people. Um, so then we need to make models. And then the key point is how do we make a model that is as close to, uh, to, the, to the, the eventual patient as we can? And this is where indeed we need to make a list of all these different things that we want to model that we run into. And then for basically each and every one of these compounds, decide, uh, comp- sorry, uh, uh, issues or, or things to uh, uh, targets need to solve um, what model is best, what we will, and what will we, what do we know, what will a model tell, and what we doesn't the model tell us. Very important, and it's always good to know what the model doesn't tell you. Um, and then with uh, that is the data that you then collect uh, to at some point move to a clinical trial. And then basically what, what, what an entire preclinical phase is, is to risk assess and efficacy assess these compounds so that when I run a phase one clinical trial, the patients do not die, or when I run a phase two or phase three, that the drug is successful. Um, so uh, that is, I think, conceptually why we, we need to be very critical of models. Then I just will go quickly to the four points that you mentioned. I think the uh, the first one on, 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 on uh, the, the metabolics of a drug is, a, is, of course, a very important point. 
Um, and there, there are, um, first of all, for a compound, of course, it's very important to know whether it needs to be metabolized or not. Um, if it is metabolized, then, then um, when you do your drug screening, either you or you do your tox, you basically need to do that with, with the metabolite and with the original compound. Um, one way of identifying if metabolites are generated is to use uh, either an, uh, an animal model, which does something, but not uh, mimics a person as a whole. Uh, this is the, uh, metabol um, the metabolites generated in animals are most definitely not the same as in people. Um, and the other one is what we do, of course, currently, and what the organoids are also doing, is that we, we use liver uh, hepatocyte to generate metabolomics, the metabolomics, and to then mass spec it and see what's in there. And then from that, assess whether these compounds that are generated are actually toxic. So this is where, and indeed, we, well, we shoot it with compounds to the clinic, of course, that, that this is actually a complicated study. But again, very importantly, it is something that models are are being used for and and where a model that is more uh, your liver example towards kidney of course where is a very important one where that is uh, what we can use organoids for uh, uh, also and what we basically want to do is something that creates an in vivo like situation as much as possible um then the other one and the, 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 the different cells that's a very important point so and actually this is also again why um by the model systems have to be patient-like as much as possible because, as you say, an, an, let's take an intestine. An intestine doesn't have only stem cells. An intestine has, has the stem cells, transamplifying cells, all the differentiated cell types. But that is actually exactly why uh, we are trying to use adult stem cell organoids or maybe RPS organoids because they make all these cell types. So when we do our assays, we can do, uh, when it's cancer drug, we can do viability, yeah? do the cells die or not? But indeed, and that is uh, the advantage of this, we can assess which cell types are dying and we can assess which ones are not. We can use imaging to see how the cell fate changes. So indeed, the, uh, the, 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 and, and that's maybe going a little bit back to the previous uh, question and, 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 uh, and the remarks, is that we, that, that why do I think that we've made a next step in model development with uh, uh, our organoids, but also uh, organoids derived from IPS by other people, is that we can actually, the, the, the list of, of issues that you rightfully mentioned, we can address so many more of them now than we could do in the past. Um, the last point, the microbiome is just in a very interesting one. So I, I, we, we don't understand the microbiome very well. Um, but what we can do now and actually are doing in the lab, so it goes for immune system as well. We have now made organoids where we can test microbiome, uh, bacteria, we can test viruses, and we can test uh, immune cells with it because indeed they, they are also important to assess. And the reason we can do that now with, uh, with adult stem cell organoids or with IPS organoids is because in the past with cell lines, the, there was no responses with, because bacteria and viruses, they don't respond to these artificial cell lines because they don't have the right characteristics, but they do to organoids mm. because they have the right characteristics. Mm. So it was a long answer, but basically I think that although right, the one thing is that an organoid or a model is not a person, so we will always need to assess what do we know, what don't we know, yeah. but it also makes exactly the key point that we, this is why we want to make a model as close to a person as possible. Yeah, if you can get the efficacy of drugs from, I don't know what it is, maybe like 5% make it to 15% make it through, that would be huge. You know, I, I know it's very low. Most of the drugs fail. Yeah. So. 
<laughs> well, at the moment, uh, the success rate is maybe if it is at six to eight percent, so it's very so the bar is not very high in that sense. Um, but indeed, uh, that the costs involved are tremendous. So, and it, it, there's really, I think that, and that that is, uh, it's an entire field. Uh, of course, not 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 us, but so there are, there's an entire field, and and uh, in in model development that has really, I think, reached an, an, and we've worked on the drugs for the last 50 years. So we have small molecules, targeted therapies, biologicals, uh, the new IO drugs, uh, CAR T cells. But now we are also realizing we need to work a bit more on the models because we're making all these fancy drugs, but we're still testing them on a HeLa cell. And I think yeah. that's where now the, the big change, that's what organoids I think represent, is this big change there, that we can actually make a better model preclinically and then increase, uh, if, indeed, if we increase it, I hope we do a little bit better, but nevertheless, um, add the, the financial consequence and the, and, the, and the patient consequences with having a little bit of an increase is already very high. Yeah, it's so complicated. I mean, then you have the cell-to-cell signaling, you know, through exosomes. And, I mean, just on and on and on. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, but uh, I think that when we come from the Hubert Institute, of course, an academic institute, we, we, this is what we, as, as me as a scientist also, uh, what we worked on uh, in the, the, uh, in our, uh, until the now. And the key point of biological research is to uh, to to make it simple enough to, under, to to ask questions that we can answer and then build from one question to the next. And biology mm. is complex, which is also the fun of it as part as well. Uh, oh, yeah. But indeed, it is at the key point of doing good research, I always think, is uh, is to, to, to delineate the right questions from this as, 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 uh, uh, as your list, and then to make sure that we get the right answers to these, uh, to these uh, sub-questions. So when, when a company will do testing with organoids, do they make dozens or hundreds i mean is it cheap enough for them to make let's say dozens or hundreds of, of organoid setups so they can test a lot of these permutations is that a possibility uh, that- uh, yeah so what we do at the moment is that in in terms of the scaling so what with industry the on the compound side uh, we are screening up to fifty thousand compounds on, uh, on and that is then on single organoid lines um, and then when we have the lead, so let's say two, three, come all the way on the one, on the close to the IND filings, close to the clinical part, um, with with uh, one, two, three compounds, uh, up to ten compounds is what we're screening for up to fifty to one hundred uh, organoid lines. Then, so that is more or less uh, how 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 the how the how the sort of on average the uh, the uh, the request from industry is and how how we are doing that. So is there good luck, meaning that? Um you test, let's say you test, I don't know, 20,000, you know, let's say you test a thousand drugs on one organoid system. Will you find typically that most of them, you know, will cause the organoid system to, to fail? And so it, it narrows down very quickly what you'd have to do to it after, or is it, uh, is it very ambiguous at the start? Um, I think that so it's a, uh... It's a it's a good point. So what it what it does is, um, and the choice of that first organoid line, I think, is is as important as it was to choose the first uh, in old fashioned way the first cell line. So you want to know that if you develop compounds against, uh, let's say, a RAS mutation in a cancer or uh, in in a specific genetic uh, uh, context. Uh, that you take that first organoid that has that mutation. Now you need to think of your clinical group, your gene- or genetic group, uh, that you want to target in the end first, and that is your first organoid. And then you uh, in a in a in a drug screen. So you basically are testing uh, chemical families, chemical entities for which ones then have a potential to target that. 
which means, of course, that uh, you will find out of these large screens a, a number of uh, hundreds of hits that are, are successful in the in 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 first one. But you need to remember that if you would have taken another organoid line, just as another cell line, that you might have, uh, you have this whole overlap on the one, but you will also have unique ones. Um, that this is why, and this is an, a key point, why, and that is something you can now do with an organoid you couldn't do before, is that with these, uh, in this sort of first phase with thousands of compounds, well, you can do it against a number of organoids, but you are always limited in number there. But because of the, it's already economical to, to take these hundreds of compounds and test them against a number of organoids. So then you will get a, a perspective of, of, of a group. And so basically what it is, this is why we're calling it preclinical uh, clinical trial, is what you're trying to do is take a bit of what you do in a clinical trial with thousands of patients into the preclinical phase, then it's much cheaper. And so that is that basically the conceptual change, that in, uh, your, in initially the first choice of the first model is still has its uh, limitations because you're not testing everything that you're not testing, putting it very simple. Um, but then you can you can move that clinical part into the preclinical phase by increasing your number of patient samples while maintaining an economical readout because in that sense the, the organoids also are, have we've learned a lot to scale it over the years so it has become much much cheaper than well when we started with our company five years ago it is it is very different. Yeah, I was hoping that I guess you know everyone would hope if I have a certain organoid line and I'm testing let's say for toxicity. And, you know, I test thousands of compounds and a few make it. Then those few, maybe now I'd have a whole bunch of different organoid lines, some that have, uh, you know, are from IPS, some that are native stem cells, some that are linked, some that are, you know, have this, that, and the other about them. And then maybe I could drill down on the toxicity and really find out before even going to the clinical stage and testing it on real people by using all kinds of different organoid models. Maybe that's like a funnel or a way to go about this. Well, I think that is an uh, actually, so, but the way we would suggest that uh, is that you can do that now with organoids as opposed to organoids IPS based and adult stem cell, both of them, uh, the other way around. So, but uh, taking the clinic into the lab, uh, this is big, uh, a patient in the lab is, 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 um, if that's the new part because with cell lines you couldn't do it because you cannot make cell lines from from all it it fails all the time and they change. But now with IPS or adult stem cell derived organoids, you have in the clinic a certain toxicity. Yeah? You can identify the patient that has a toxicity that you are uh, interested in, uh, interested about scientifically, mechanistically, etc. So from that patient, then you can generate organoids. So you know that you are working on the right model because it has clinical toxicology. And then, there, because we can make organoids from everyone, then you can use a model into the lab that actually you know already has this clinical toxicity, as opposed to the other way around. When, when you see in vitro toxicology, but you don't know if that in vitro toxicology has any clinical relevance. So that, that, that I think that is, and I, I think that's what you meant, but correct me if, uh, if I'm wrong. But so I think that is yeah. the uh, a key point. So you can take any patient, you can take a clinical phenotype, a disease you want to solve, but you can do the same for tox. So you can take a patient that had a bad response and then put it into the So what we are actually doing at the moment with, with the number of companies, uh, that's a newer aspect now, organoids are getting more accepted, 
is that during a clinical trial, companies start making organoids from the patients that are treated. Because what that means is that from the patients that are responsive in their clinical trials, but also the ones that are not responsive, now you have a model in the lab and you can find out why it did or did not work and actually use that for new drug development or for adjustments. Uh, they call them what PDO, right? Patient-derived organoids. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is why we call them PDO. Yeah. Hmm. And I guess predominantly right now, they're using it. They're taking if if someone has cancer, they'll take their cancer cells, they'll make PDOs from them, and then they'll try to find a personalized treatment for that particular person and their particular cancer. Well, so it's it's so so indeed. So we do both. So we indeed we we, we call them PDOs these days. Um, but so we, we we use them on the one hand for personalized medicine. So this is when we, we did, when we use them to see what a particular patient would benefit from. But on the preclinical side, we use it as a model system to develop drugs for other people. So based on this genetic genetic or clinical phenotype. So the PDOs are a name for the models that is patient derived, but can be used for personalized medicine, but also for drug development preclinically. Is there any sense of, um, so if you harvest some cells from me and you make them into iPS cells, you know, you're removing my epigenetic, epigenetic marks, um, how similar will my iPS cells be to someone else if you, you know, turn their cells into iPS cells? Like once you, uh, you do this iPS, are we all very similar as people or are we still very different? Um, yeah. Do we know that? Um, I so well, obviously we don't make iPS cells, but so but so from a, what we know from genetics is that is that indeed the uh, epigenetic marks are gone with an iPS, so that those differences are 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 lost. Uh, but uh, the genetic so the genetic differences between people is also already very big. So this is why uh, the reason why iPS cells are still a useful tool, although they don't have the epigenetics, because uh, that specifically the genetic context. So you can know and from uh, uh, from doing NGS, you can know the uh, the, the genes that we know uh, mutations and the consequences of. But the reason that still these sequences are not always informative is because in the genetic context of that particular person, it actually does something that is different. So this is where, uh, on the one hand, uh, in, in, in the epigenetics, of course, uh, this is well, but then you can use adult stem cell derived organoids, you will have epigenetics and genetics. But in IPS-based uh, systems, the genetics are also personal. So even in the, uh, if you make 10 IPS derived organoids uh, from a specific organ from 10 people, you will get uh, a variety of responses based on their genetic. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, yeah. it's just a lot of complication. So I guess, yeah. you know, we're, we're coming to yeah. the end. Um, you know, as a person out there that, you know, I mean, everyone has problems. Everyone, unfortunately, passes at some point. When will people start to see and hear about um, organoids in use for their own problems down the road you know someone listening you know unfortunately yeah. has cancer uh, when will they be able do you think to speak to you know their clinicians and say hey can we uh, you know can we figure out what's going on with me by using you know by creating organoids from my cells like when when do you think this would be widespread in use yeah um i did that i think they're well there's widespread and and there's use so at the moment we are for uh, for in in the in the netherlands for cystic fibrosis 
it's already being used. So there are used uh, patients treated based on organoid results. And that is what we are expanding in, in, in Europe at the moment as well. Um, for oncology, um, we are running, we and, and our collaborators are running clinical trials. So at the moment we have seen uh, that, uh, that it works. So that means that in these trials, uh, patients, uh, pa patients are uh, being compared. So uh, because of the, that's, uh, the state that it's at, uh, yeah, from our perspective, of course, we think it is uh, a, a, a couple of years, uh, or a, a, meaning not, uh, not five years, but much shorter. Uh, the results that we see in the US and in Europe and in, in actually in China in our collaborations and our own are so good. And, and there are indeed academically already people that are, as a company, uh, we need, of course, the right approvals, but academically people are uh, already sometimes doing it. Um, which I mean, as a both scientist, but also as a company, we need to be careful. I think it's always good uh, that the technology, even if we are very positive about it, needs to be proven. So uh, we are doing our trials. But yes, the 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 the, the, uh, the it's going very rapidly. Actually, when we first had our organoid, uh, and we didn't expect that we would have moved this far uh, as we are right now. So. Um, it is. Uh, it is. Uh, it is not tomorrow, but it uh, definitely is also something that will happen in the next couple of years, and where we think we can actually offer it to people uh, uh, as a as a predictive tool. That's excellent. So, all right. What's um, what's the best way to get in contact with uh, with your company and perhaps with you and find out what you're doing? And, you know. I think that so. Well, you, 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 you mentioned uh, the website indeed uh, correctly. So it is uh, the company is called Hubrecht Organoid Technology and, and Hub for short. Uh, and not Hub for short. It's, it's in short. It's Hub and then Hubrecht Organoid Technology is the full name. Uh, the, the website, as you mentioned, uh, is uh, and uh, and uh, the email address info uh, at okay. hubfororganoid.nl is uh, a way of getting in touch. And of course, we are presenting uh, for the people that are in science or in industry. Uh, we are presenting uh, well, uh, everywhere around the world in the in the conferences, um, but I think the website is probably the easiest way. Okay, well, Robert, this has been a great call. It's a or, nice or LinkedIn, of course. Sorry, I'm uh, LinkedIn, of okay. course, is also. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I forget. Still, I'm getting too old. Sorry. Well, yeah. very good. Yeah, Robert, this has been a great call. A good overview of you know what the issues are and what's possible. So I, I appreciate you coming. Thank you so much. Thank you for your invitation again, and uh, thank you very much. It was an interesting uh, conversation. Thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.